interesting since we announced it, I've gotten a lot of questions coming my way for or against. What do you mean by that? Well, we're going to jump into all of the um, hot potatoes that are hurting and fracturing and dividing our country. And uh, we need to have better discussion. We need to learn how to talk because we're not very good at it. So we're going to jump into it. So let's start with why is it even important to think with integrity regarding cultural issues? Mark last week talked. Uh, thank you, Mark, by the way. did a sermon where he, he talked about how divided we are and everything is organized around causes. And there's a cause for everything. He mentioned three specific ones, but the way we're having this discussion is based on cause. And as long as we keep the discussion there, we're going to continue to fragment and argue and fight because if it doesn't happen to be your cause, number one, they're going to try to make you feel guilty for that not being your cause. And, and number two is that maybe we're missing the whole point that there's something a little bit higher, a higher overarching reason why we want to have these discussions. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, what is that? So because of this approach, we don't really have um, a clear way of generating unity within our country. Have you noticed that? Wow. I mean, some of you know I've been, uh, it's just a kind of a hobby of mine. I love reading the, the headlines of the press a couple times a day. I just enjoy it. I just have a lot of fun. I just laugh. Uh, I decided God's either crying or laughing, and my view of God says he's laughing, so I'm going to laugh too at the sometimes the idiocy of what I see and the, the arguing. Just uh, this week, I was in Mozambique, and, and I still get the news sent to me on my personal electronic device, so I know what's happening here. And a senator says, we need to outlaw lobbyists, and the very next day hired a lobbyist. Perfect. That's exactly what I'm talking about. We don't know how to have this conversation in any kind of generative way or way that generates unity. So if we don't have really good criteria, we're in trouble. And you know what I found in the last six years of hanging out with people here in our county is that, man, we are really stressed out. We are very anxious. You feel it? Do you feel it? we're heading into one of the bloodiest presidential uh, years probably that I can remember? I go back quite a ways. And... Uh, it's just amazing, the anxiety level. People don't know what to do. They don't know how to approach it. So what is our goal? Let me tell you what our goal is not. We're not going to tell you who to vote for. And we're not even going to tell you how to pick who to vote for or what to vote for. That's your personal conscience. Have fun with it, okay? Um, I invite all of you to read as much as you can and learn about it. Don't get too uptight about it. Vote your national, your, uh, vote your conscience and live with it. What we want to do is to give you a framework, if we can, for having the discussion and begin to talk about how can we have the discussion in a way that impacts Summit County right here. Okay, I can't change the nation. <clears throat> I've written several letters in the last two years to people in Washington expressing my opinion on things. I hope you're doing the same. I don't know if you are or not. I've also done it to state leaders. I can't change the state of Colorado, but I am convinced that we can have an impact right here. Right here. We can. Because we have enough critical mass, and all of you are spread around our county, and all of you know a bunch of people. I hear our name all the time. I hear the name DCC regularly, and it's It's good. It's positive, whether I'm in Starbucks or Sunshine Cafe or whether, wherever I happen to be, Pug Ryan's, it doesn't matter. I hear the name and I hear people, people talk to me. Um, grocery store, sometimes I walk in the grocery store, I can't get grocery shopping done because people talk to me. 
I mean, there's been times when I walked in the grocery store and literally had 20 conversations. And so I like to go at 2 in the morning or send Nancy. That way I can get it done. So we have a good, we have a good reputation. We can build on that. And this is one of those areas, especially this year, where we as a church can actually make an impact. And that's really what's important to me. Um, the question is, do you actually believe that? That's the real question. And maybe by the end or somewhere during this series, you will develop a, a deeper heart for having to, learning to have the discussion in a way that's healthy, life-giving, positive. But where do we begin? Where do we start? Mark already raised the concept of dignity, and that's where we're going to start, the concept of dignity. Because that underlies, in this book that we call the Bible, that underlies everything that we're doing. You may remember that I... Um, Earlier in the year before the amphitheater, I talked about holiness, and I talked about it from the perspective that holiness is an invitation. And I asked you the question during that series, do you see holiness when you hear that term, be holy or holiness, as one of these things? Is a whole bunch of normal rules to live by? If so, that kind of makes you a Pharisee, to be honest with you. And I said, what if we looked at holiness as an invitation? It's an invitation by God to enter into a relationship with him and to begin to live a certain way, a way that we were created to live. In a way that we don't know how to do it very well, but that's what we're supposed to do. And if we live that way, then we begin to experience deeper joy. And the people around us really want to learn more about our beliefs. Because they watch us and we're different too. So holiness, I think, is invitation. So I shared that in Mozambique. So the students, being students, I love students. They do everything they can to trip you up. They said, oh yeah, well then what do you do with Exodus 3? So I said, okay, let's take a look at Exodus 3. So this is a story of the Moses and the burning bush. Moses sees the bush that is not burning up, so he goes walking over. He's kind of curious. Huh, what, what's going on here? And so when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Who on earth is talking to me? He didn't say that. I kind of added that. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground. They said, how is that an invitation? I said, well, that's actually one of the easier verses to, to help understand it. Because if you've ever been to an Asian country, I've been to lots of them, uh, you take your shoes off when you're entering the house. Just the way you do it. Every time I teach in Nepal in February and March, it's kind of chilly. And they don't have any heating in their buildings or their houses, and we take our shoes off. So I'm in the classroom eight hours a day teaching with no shoes on, and all the students are barefooted. I finally learned to wear wool socks and moccasins because it's just cold, at least for me. And, uh, and that's how you show respect. You get invited to somebody's house, you take your shoes off. Where's God's house in this story? Where's this house? It's in a burning bush. God's house is wherever God is. And it's in a burning bushes. And he said, take your shoes off. He's inviting Moses into his house. There's that invitation right there. That's the concept of holiness. And holiness is an invitation to live and enjoy the benefits of being made, being made in God's image. That's really what it is. But what does it mean to be made in God's image? We have lots of technical language to help us understand it. What I want to do is put it in words that we as a congregation can use to 
maybe frame the discussion going forward and also frame how we relate to one another. So what does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, at one level, it means that we're an icon. In fact, that's the Greek word used, icon, to describe image. We're an icon. We're representative of God. And here it's, it's a very important to look at the pronouns. And um, the, the image concept occurs in Genesis, early chapters of Genesis, and then it stops. Nothing happens for the rest of the Old Testament. Silence. Dead silence. Until we get to the New Testament, where then it begins to get fleshed out. Why is that? We'll come back to that in just a minute. But it basically means that we are an icon. We represent someone. It doesn't say that God's image is in us. It doesn't say that. Nor does it say that we are God's image. We're not. We are fashioned in God's image. We are fashioned to represent him as an image bearer, as an icon, if you will. What happened in Genesis so that it stopped? Well, I have a metaphor which I'm going to use in the sermon. I actually thought my metaphor was better than Nancy's, but Nancy really wants me to use her metaphor too. So we're going to get both metaphors, mine and Nancy's. So in the middle of the night, about 2 o'clock, sorry to be too personal, but I had to get up and go to the bathroom. So now remember, I just got back from Mozambique. Nancy likes our bedroom to be a sensory deprivation chamber. No light. None. Whatsoever. I crawl on my hands and knees to get to the bathroom because I can't see anything. Well, then you factor in the, the jet lag from Mozambique, and I'm exhausted and tired. I'm disoriented. I wake up. I have no idea where I am. None whatsoever. And I go walking, and I trip and fall face first into our full-length mirror. Glass everywhere. Well, my motion carries me forward, so my knees the next thing to go. My face, right here and here, hits the mirror, followed by my knee. So, that's what happened in Genesis 3. If you like the metaphor, tell Nancy. That's called the fall. That's called the fall. Shattered the mirror. Mirror is actually the metaphor that John Calvin uses. So it actually does work. So this morning when I got up, uh, fortunately I wasn't bruised. I did have some cuts. And I look and there's a nice implant where my face landed. And, and the cracks all go off from there. And there's another one where my knee landed and it's all shattered from there. That's now over in the dumpster. We had to pick up all the glass. It's a good metaphor. That's what happened in Genesis 3. That's why... Image, the language of image bearing stops because we now have a problem. We have a shattered mirror. So what does it mean to be in God's image? I think it basically means two things. It means that we have a special connection or relationship with God. That's what it means. Different than the rest of creation, which carries with it the obligation to represent him to the rest of creation. That's what it means. God is invisible. How, and we've asked this question in a variety of ways, how are the people that we love right outside these walls, how are they ever going to see the one true living God in his kingdom? How are they going to see it? There's no billboard. Right? There's no plane flying overhead with a banner. There's no pop-ups on the internet. How does it happen? By looking at us. That's how. There's no other way. By looking at us. 
This is what it means to be made in, fashioned in the image of God, is that we begin to represent Him to the rest of creation. This means that at the very core of who we are as humans, we have dignity. We have worth. We have value. That's what it means. We have the honor of representing Him to a world that can't see Him any other way by looking at us. I used a story a number of years ago. Now, you're, uh, you're standing. Um, you live in Summit County, so you get this. I had to describe this to the Mozambicans. They've never seen snow. So I had to describe it. You wake up one day and you walk out. You've had fresh snow the night before. And there's this, this virgin field of snow. And the sun's just coming up. You know what it's like. All the little snow crystals, they all reflect, right? You understand that? And you have little rainbows and reflection. How beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful things on the planet is to wake up and see that. And all of a sudden you hear a retching sound. Retching sound. You look down and there's a, a, a passed out drunk laying right here. And he's thrown up all over himself. He probably hasn't bathed in a long, long time. He uh, may not even be conscious. If you've ever seen somebody like that, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, where do you see God clearest? There or here? Only one is made in God's image. Right here. He has more dignity than creation. That's how important we are. That's the dignity that we carry with us in everything that we do. How can this be? How can he or us be like God? I'm reading a book by Scott McDyte, one of my favorite New Testament guys. And uh, it's on this whole concept of, it's called A Community Called Atonement. Fascinating book. I've actually finished reading it. Here's what he said. What is God like? And what does God do? Genesis 1 and 2 gives us a clue. God creates, God rules, God speaks, God names, God orders, God establishes variety, God establishes beauty, God makes a ducky little garden for humans. I love that. I'd never heard that before. A ducky little garden for humans. God makes a partner for Adam. Her name is Eve. God rests. God obligates humans to himself through his promise. That's what God does. That automatically leads to the very next question, then what does it mean to be like God? He goes further. He said, to be an icon, an image bearer, what that means, first of all, is to be in union with God as icons. We were made for that deep, intimate relationship with the one true living God. That's what that means. But further, second, it means to be in communion with other icons, with each other. We are to be in relationships with each other. We're going to see some of that in just a little bit. Thirdly, though, it means to participate with God in His creation. In His creating, His ruling, His speaking, His naming, His ordering, His variety, uh, His beauty, His location, His partnering, His resting, and to oblige God in His obligating of us. Thus, an icon is granted, self-oriented, Yes, it is about ourselves, take care of ourselves, but more than that, other-oriented and cosmos-oriented. To be an icon is to be a missional being, one designed to love God, self, and others, and to represent God by participating in God's rule in this world. That's Genesis 1. The very first command he gave them after he made them 
in his image was to rule over creation and take care of it. To participate with God in all that God does. So image bearing, it's, it's not a static quality. It's not a stamp. That's not how it works. The Old Testament never explained it. All it said was, very simple, we are made in God's image, and it stops. And it's silent until you get to Christ. And then all of a sudden we begin to see all this language appearing and these concepts about what it is. It's not simply a static quality. It's a relationship. It has to the way we relate to each other. If I just stand there and the world looks at me, that doesn't help them see God any clearer than a signpost. It's only when I start relating to people, to we start relating to each other, that they begin to see that we're different. We're different than the rest of creation. So the New Testament develops the idea that we're being transformed into the image of Christ. What that means is we're now being fashioned. God picks up the journey where he left off at the fall and begins to fashion us into this image that he wanted all along. It means that we're becoming like Christ. So we've argued all along. Every year I've been here that being made in the image of Christ, being transformed into the image of Christ, Christ is the perfect human. As we move toward Christ, what happens is we become more like Christ. We become more loving, more affectionate, more kind, more forgiving, more generous. You fill in the blank. That's what it means. Once we receive the Holy Spirit, that journey is automatic. That's captured by the word predestination. A lot of discussion and argument in the theological world about what that means. But my observation is every single time the verb appears, it it relates to Christians. Christians are predestined. We have the Holy Spirit moving us toward Christ. If that process stops, it's because there's something in the way. We call that sin. That's what it means. You got something more important. It's called an idol than God. You got to get that out of the way and you automatically start moving again. That's what it means to be a Christian is that we're being shaped and transformed into the image of Christ. It means that we're on a journey. Okay, so now we can capture this using a different metaphor and tying it to the cage. All summer long, we talked about life outside the cage, right? That we as non-Christians are in a cage. It's not a bad cage. We're actually pretty happy there. We're happier than we again when we get out of the cage because it's kind of uncomfortable when we get out of the cage. When we turn to Christ, the cage door opens and the Holy Spirit takes our hand and walks with us from that moment on and begins to teach us how to live a life that we were created to live, but we have no idea how to live it. And that's what life is like as a Christian. But now let's go back and put image bearing in this, in this context. There's four stages to image bearing in the Bible. You have the Genesis account at the garden where, and I'm going to use for now, I'm going to change metaphors to a pot. Think of a potter who's made a pot. Okay? So you have image in the garden. We're made in the image of God and it's wonderful. It's delightful. And then you have a fall. Whoops. There's the pot. Dropped on the ground. Pieces. And then you have phase three where God, Christ, picks up the pieces and begins to glue them back together again. And you can see the seams. You can see where there's pieces are still not yet put back in place, but it begins to resemble a pot again. This is, the image, this is what's meant by being transformed into the image of Christ. And then the fourth phase is glory when the pot's perfect again and wonderful. So living in the cage is in phase two. 
the pot has been dropped and it's shattered. Being let out of the cage is when Jesus begins to put all the pieces back together again. So we're going to use this metaphor for the rest of the series. We are cracked pots. Some of you are cracked pots. Let's be honest. We are cracked pots. That's what it means. That's where we live right now in this third section until glory when everything is finished. We are cracked pots. Or as 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, we are jars of clay. We have this treasure in our jars of clay. We're human. We're frail. You can see, if you get to know me, well, you'll see the cracks and you'll see the pieces that are still missing that Christ hasn't put in place yet. But as we together as a church walk that journey, we become more, we look more and more like a pot. We look more and more like Christ. We're able to fulfill the function with which He created us to bring Him glory. So the purpose of atonement and redemption is to restore that process. That's why we go through what we go through. That's the Bible wrapped up right there in just a couple of ideas. That's the journey that we're on. So, how does our role as icons, how does that relate to our role in society? We have to live here, right? Okay. Number one, we were created to live in fellowship with one another. That's the basic storyline of the Bible. That's what we're created for. That's where the Bible starts and that's where the Bible ends. We are made to live in relationship. We're going to look at just a few verses that capture various nuances of this idea that we're meant to live together in a healthy community, okay, where it's safe. We're not this kind of community. We're this kind of community. Come be part of us. I'm a broken pot. I'm cracked. So are you. Let's be honest about that. The beginning point is that, uh, is in Genesis 12. Entirely, I mean, eternity is the society around us specifically to enjoy relationship with each other. Look at Genesis 12. This is a call to Abraham. This is the Abrahamic covenant. This is the backbone, the foundation of all biblical theology. It's referred back to this one verse over and over and over again. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I, God, will bless you, Abram. Then look what he says, And I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. To whom? Well, let's keep going. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth, all the nations will be blessed through you. This is the core backbone of the Bible. God says, I will bless you, and you will bless others. That's the reason why God blesses you. By the way, if you want to know the simple definition of greed, it's real simple. God gives you a bunch of stuff. Okay? How do you think? Do you think this is mine and I have to protect it? It's called greed. Or do you think God has blessed me with this so I can bless others? It's called righteousness. That's the basic definition. Well, it goes on from there. In 1 Kings, uh, you have... This is a dedication of the temple. And this is Solomon's great prayer at the dedication of the temple when they finally built it in Jerusalem. Right in the middle of the prayer, you have these words. As for the foreigner, the nations. We just read God's going to bless the nations through Abraham. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray to this temple, then hear from heaven your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks you. 
Bless the foreigner. Why? So that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel. That's the reason we should love our neighbor. We don't care what country they're from. We want God to bless them. Pray that God would bless your neighbors and your friends. Pray that. This is Solomon's great prayer right here in front of the whole nation. Do you get this picture of this healthy community where foreigners are coming? And, and the people that are here saying, God, bless these people. Bless them. You see the richness of it? It's right there in the text. Okay, then you go over to Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a very interesting one because book. This straddles the exile when they went to um, uh, when they went to Babylon, and so Jeremiah is the prophet that nobody wants to be. Well, right in the middle of there, they're now in exile, and so he writes them a letter on behalf of God. And here's what he says: This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon: Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens. Eat. Eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there in this city where I just sent you. to. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you will too. Get the picture of this wholesome community. Christians entering into it. Okay, let's before we go to the next passage, let's put a simple principle on the on the table. I don't think it's possible to legislate morality. I don't think it's possible. Because morality talks about the condition of the heart. It's possible to legislate behavior. You don't need a law telling you not to murder because you have the Holy Spirit. That's being inbred in you as you grow. But not everybody has that same perspective. You see, the laws don't legislate morality. They legislate behavior. That raises a simple question. Where does morality enter into the world? How? There's only one answer. Through us. Because when we live our lives differently, we convince people there's a better way. There's a better way. So now let's go to 2 Corinthians. passage that many of you know. This is Paul's argument, saying something very similar. We read this verse every, every Sunday at the amphitheater. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is what? Gone. The new is here. It's a new age. All of this from, in a good sense of that, use of that word. <laughs> All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the church, the ministry of reconciliation. That's our job. Not fighting. Reconciling. That's our job. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting his people's sins against them. And he has committed to us, there it is a second time, the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. There is no other way for the people, our friends who we love, to see the truth of this fantastic news except by looking at us. And trust me, if we're this kind of church, if we're judgmental, our people will know it. This county will know it. And if we are a welcoming church, a redeeming church, this county will know that as well. 
So, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. That means that we are representing God as His righteous icons in the world. That's what being an image bearer is all about. We have dignity and so do they. And our job is to love them well so that they understand more about what that dignity looks like. This means that God is in the business of creating a community who self-identify as the people of God. We should never be ashamed to tell people we are Christians, ever. We should be ashamed when we start preaching and controlling people. But never be ashamed to tell them the truth. Countless times of background, I'm a Christian, I'm just curious what yours is. We start a conversation. There's no argument, we have a conversation. And we begin to explore each other's thoughts and viewpoints. It also means that we should not be known by our political views. Listen carefully. That's not what defines us. You don't have any of the early Christians defining themselves by their political views. They define themselves by their belief in Jesus. And they lived and compromised in a world the Roman world, infanticide, euthanasia, abortion, it's all there. All the sexual orientation questions we wrestle with, it's all there in the first century world. The government paid for it. And they had to compromise in that world. And we're going to learn how to do that. This is what Peter was getting at in the verse that Steve just read, First Peter 2. Go ahead and put that one up. You are a chosen people. You, the church. You're a royal priesthood. Priests on behalf of whom? The nations. You're a holy nation. You're God's special possession. Why? So that you can hide inside DCC? No, 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 no. So that you can declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Declare it to whom? Our friends and neighbors. That's who. But this comes after his command in 1 Peter 1, 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, see how obedience fits in? So that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. This right here is the core of a healthy church. Deep love. Deep love. Everywhere you turn in the Bible, this is the message. God provides atonement, or I would use the word redemption. They overlap here. God provides atonement or redemption in order to create a fellowship of persons who love God and who love others, who, are, who find healing for the self and who care about the world. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the... What? earth. This is our home. This is our home. God wants to create a loving community of cracked pots that can show broken pots what it means to be a cracked pots. So what does this mean? Many have argued throughout history. I'm not the first one to argue this. The gospel that we preach shapes the kind of churches that we create. Think about that. The gospel that we preach Think of the difference. 
The gospel that we preach creates, shapes the kind of churches we create, but the kind of church we create shapes the gospel that we preach. What kind of church are we? Or more importantly, what kind of church do you want us to be? What we want to do in this series is help you think more theistically rather than naturally about the issues facing our country to learn how to have discussion. I had a seminary professor one time say, and I never forgot it, we may be, uh, we may be confessing theists, we believe in God, but we are practicing atheists. We act as if God's really not in control. And I'm saying it's time to come back together and have the discussion in all these areas. We're not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm not going to do that. And we're not going to have the discussion at the level of policy and strategy. I've told you before, people ask me about the wall. I have no idea what to think about the wall. It's not my area. I've never read a book on it, never talked to a person about it. I can tell you what I think about immigration because every single prophet in the Old Testament talked about immigration. I can tell you what I think about that. That's near and dear to God's heart. How it's lived out, I have no idea. I may have my personal thoughts, which I'm not going to share with you. So how do we have the discussion below the level of strategy where it's in the level of value and theology? My favorite question, one of them around the county, is what do you think of President Trump? I'm guaranteed to get fireworks. This direction or this direction. And then that just opens the door for a discussion. Tell me why you feel that way. Why are you excited? Why do you hate him? How, what did that communicate to you? What do you mean by that? What do you think he meant by that? And so we're going to start looking at these really tough issues because I believe if we as a church can come together and learn how to have the discussion, you know what else can happen? As cracked pots, we can show this county how to have the discussion. And even more important than that, I want to show them how to have the discussion. More important than that, we can work together with people in our county to create positive impact. That gives us the chance to show them what cracked pots look like. It's better to be a cracked pot than a broken pot. They long for that hope. They long for that. Father, thank you for sending us your son. We just delight in being called your children. Your sons and daughters. We don't always understand it, but we are grateful that you felt we had enough value, worth, and dignity to give us life. Thank you. In your son's name, amen. I'm going to ask the ushers to come take the offering. Thank you for being generous. There's not much more to say. Thank you.